we begin, I want to ask a simple question that I hope will help elucidate where I think this passage is taking us today. I want to ask the question, what is your cause? What is your cause? You know, you turn on the news and you hear of environmental causes, right, which are impacting our wallets and gas prices. You attend a school board meeting and hear of the gender theory cause, which impacts the basics of where you go to a bathroom. Turn on the TV and see a commercial asking for money to help fund the cancer cause. You flip the channel and see another commercial asking you to fund the hunger and basic medicine cause in a country across the sea. You open your email and get a request to fund a political cause that tries to bundle all of these causes together. You scroll down, I thought you would appreciate that one. You go to your social media account and you see a weight loss cause and the causes go on and on and on, don't they? You know, if we were to begin to distill these causes down, I believe we'd get to the root issue and that's where Jesus gets us to this morning. It's people appear to follow good causes, at least good for them. You know, the proverb says, every man does what's right in his what? His own eyes. See, every cause and every person behind that cause sincerely, I think, believes that they are right. They think they have the right thinking. They think they have a corner on some truth that is important for the rest of the world to hear. And that is exactly the situation that we find ourselves here, here in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. We see a group of devoted religious leaders seeking to honor God, willingly arranging their lives to worship Him. We could ask, well, what is their cause? And it would be, seem to many, to be right. It would appear to be good. After all, devotion, worship of Yahweh, thanksgiving. However, it is in light of this that we see Jesus assess their cause completely differently, my friends. Completely differently than how they assess their own cause. That's a tragedy because Jesus condemns them. He condemns them. In John 8, we are at the culmination of a great religious festival, the Festival of Booths. Two weeks ago, Pastor Mike introduced us to that. Celebrating God's delivering favor upon the nation from Egypt, right? We, we understand the exodus, God's deliverance, His steadfast provision now in the, in the wilderness. And Jesus declares that the salvation that they are celebrating in this very temple, at this very time, my friends, is counterfeit. It's false. It's fake. It's fleeting. And according to Jesus, only leads to eternal condemnation. To eternal death. And you might have some tension with that statement. After all... This morning, they were celebrating the Exodus. That's something God did for them, right? They were celebrating God's ability to deliver his people 
and provide for them for 40 years faithfully in the wilderness, whether they deserved it or not. However, we're going to see that as, past, as Mr. Hickson read through the debate that Jesus and the Pharisees have over Jesus' claims, that even though they were celebrating something good, Jesus says in no uncertain way that they are missing the point. They are missing Jesus. And so we could ask the question this morning, who or what is your cause? Jesus wants to ask us the question this morning, who are you following? Who are you following? You may have a cause today. And if it's outside the Lord Jesus Christ, can I just submit to you for the next 40 so minutes, I'm going to seek to lovingly demonstrate to you that that, that is not enough. No doubt, in this room this morning, there are are many that have friends and family that have a good cause, that pound the table, that get excited around Thanksgiving and Christmas, and they want to talk about their cause. But Jesus says that it's apart from me. It will lead to destruction. Because Jesus submits to us here that there's a clear contrast, a clear contrast between all causes, all of them, <laughs> and the salvation that he compassionately calls everyone to believe and follow. And so there's a clear contrast this morning, we're going to see, of Jesus' salvation. It's a clear contrast that he calls salvation to himself, and he calls compassionately for you and for me to believe in him. And so we're going to see that clear contrast. We're going to also see the compassionate call. And then on the flip side, we're going to see the concrete consequence of rejecting the true salvation that Jesus provides. And so look with me in John chapter 8, verse 12. Because it's in this statement at the very beginning of this passage that is the center of the debate that follows the debate that will take up that he will take up with the Pharisees for the remainder of the chapter. And there is a clear contrast with the true salvation that Jesus provides. Jesus says, then, or John says, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness. He, but will have the light of life. Jesus says all the causes of all the world of all time may appear to be good, but they stand in contrast to me. They st stand in, in dim darkness according, uh, in light of me. And he uses this beautiful picture of light I am the light. And I want to expound on that a little bit this morning because I think it will be helpful for us. First of all, the light is a promised eternal life. is the promised eternal life. Light goes all the way back, doesn't it? It takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. It takes us all the way back to God's creative power. It takes us all the way back to in 
the beginning. And it's a very, it's very presence, light is synonymous with life in the context of the Old Testament and of the Old Testament here. Not only is it synonymous with physical life, but it is also throughout the Old Testament a figure. That is, light is a figure, it's a picture. It illustrates what God wants us to understand that He has spiritual life to offer. And so it's no wonder to us that God says that the law of God, the Word of God, is a lamp unto our what? Unto our feet. The Jews saying, the Lord is my light, my salvation is He. Even in the appropriate context here of the festival of booths where we're celebrating the exodus and the wilderness wanderings, don't forget what the glory cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night was to them. It was a beautiful and very clear representation that God is with them. He is there present with them. All you have to do is what? Follow. Just follow me and I will provide. So light is a very clear promise in the Old Testament of eternal life. And we could take our Bibles just a few pages back to John chapter 1. Mr. Richard referenced it this morning. John chapter 1 and verse 4, where John says, as he's introducing the Messiah to his, to his comrades, he says, in Jesus was life, and the life was what? The light of men. And then in verse 9, he says, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. It keeps on going. So John takes the idea that light, light is life. He takes the idea of the Old Testament that light is spiritual life. And then he, he hones it down right away in his gospel in the intro to say, this is the one. This is the light. It is Jesus, the Messiah. So John says, secondly, Jesus is the light that is promised, the eternal life. And I want to look at verse 12. We haven't got out of verse 12 yet. I know we've got a few verses to go. I appreciate that. So look at the time. Let's look, better. look back at our Bibles. Then Jesus, and look at what John does here. He says, Jesus again. And that word again is, is so incredibly important because it, it does a couple of things for us this morning. It reminds us that there is a context in which Jesus is about to say that he is the light of the world. In that context, what I'm going to work to do this morning is demonstrate to you is a powerful one. As Jesus declares, I am the life. There's a context here that we should not overlook. And that word again takes us really back to John chapter 7, verse 37. And Pastor Mike alludes to the fact that we would be kind of alluding to each other's sermons a little bit. Because the context is so clear that Jesus is still at the festival of the booths here. He's still at the festival of tabernacles, the feast of booths. And, and in verse 37, if you're looking at that, in John chapter 7, we're told that this is the last day of the festival. The festival of booths, which lasts about a week. And we're at the climax of the festival activities. It's the great day. 
Everyone's looking. It's the culmination. Everyone's looking forward to. And Jesus is here. And it is in this context that Jesus states what he's about to state to us. I want to set up a little bit as a reminder the festival of booths was a celebration of their salvation, as I already mentioned, from Egypt. It was the deliverance, the exodus, the exiting, and God's provision for Israel during the wilderness years. And light was an important figure in the festival. Part of the festival was making decorative tents and booths, and they, 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 they lived, essentially, in those booths. They camped out for a whole week, commemorating the fact that for 40 years, God provided as they set up their booths and took them down for 40 years. And so this was a, this was a, a, a it's like a Civil War reenactment. Some of you Civil War junkies that do that, I've, I've, I've seen one, Pastor Tim's kind of a junkie on historical things, and I remember as a youth, uh, we went to a Civil, we actually got a chance to look, watch a Civil War reenactment. That was quite something. If you have never done that, that would be something kind of fun to do, uh, but it's sobering for sure. But every year, the whole nation got together, and this is what they did in reenactment, to not forget the deliverance and the salvation that God provides for them. And so the Festival of Booze was, was, was this. Uh, but it also um, had a couple other figures besides the booze, besides the tents. Pastor Mike preached on the, the pouring out of the water last time there in John chapter 7. And the priests would, uh, the, the Pharisees, the leaders, they would, they would form a processional from the Pool of Siloam. They would have to walk about a half mile to the temple with their jars of water. And they would... Pour them out and, 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 and figure that God is the great provider of salvation and of, of all that they are. God's the one who gave them life in the desert from providing water. And then we find ourselves in the center of the entire festival at its climax. And Jesus cries out and says, you're missing the point, right? Verse 38, what does he say in John chapter 7? I, <laughs> anyone who thirsts, what? Come to me. You won't thirst. Come to me. And again puts us back into that context here in John chapter 8 verse 12. We're back in this festival context. It's the great day. It's the finale. And like many on a great day, there's great crowds that gather during the day. Kind of think of Fourth of July where everyone comes while it's sunlight outside and the festivities are going on. And then what happens? The sun goes down and it's dark. Just like the, the great water pouring ceremony, there was a great light ceremony to commemorate the close of this festival. And I want to read to you, I'm, I kind of like to get to the, to, the, to the word on things, not the word, God's word, but to the, to the historical word. So I want to read to you from the Mishnah. This is not a, obviously an inspired thing. This is, a, this is an oral tradition that was uh, written down, one of the earliest complete uh, scripts of Jewish oral tradition. And, and um, the rabbis say this about the light ceremony. Okay, this is from the Mishnah. They say there were golden candle holders. And when they say candle holders, think like giant candelabras. Okay? With four golden bowls. And when they say bowls, think swimming pools. And you'll see why in a second. So golden candlesticks, essentially with golden, four golden bowls on top of those candlesticks. 
And there were, this will give you the size, there were four ladders for each candlestick. So there was, a, there was a ladder on each candlestick going up to it. So in order to get to lighting this candlestick, you had to climb up on a ladder. Okay, That's the scale. That's the scope. And, and there were four young priests with jars of oil containing 120 logs. Some of you like to burn a few logs in the fireplace. 120 at one time. And these young priests would climb up on the ladders and they'd pour the oil as an accelerant, right? Every good fire has an accelerant in each bowl. And out of the worn out undergarments and girdles of the priests, they made wicks. So we're talking about ginormously huge scale candles. They lit the candlesticks, and there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem which was not lit up from the light. The pious men and the wonder workers would dance before them with flaming torches in their hands. So not only did we have these candelabras all over the temple walls, lighting by, by four giant, enormous bowls with 120 logs. Not only did we have those illuminaries around the temple, but... We also had men dancing with flaming torches in their hands. And they were singing and praising God. And this was the context where Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Jesus couldn't have more of a clear contrast here, could he? All who follow me will not, what? Walk in darkness have eternal life. So the issue, my friends, is not the festival. Indeed, God, they, they were obeying God by, by working this festival, by keeping this festival. God asked them to keep this festival. The issue is that they missed the point. They missed the point about the exodus. They, they missed the point about the wilderness wanderings and its provision. They missed the one who can stop anyone from thirsting again. They missed the true illuminary of their life. It was Jesus. Jesus says these festivals are meant to point to the person that provides salvation for you and for all of the world, the person who provided the provision in the wilderness. Jesus says life is not found through the observance of a festival. It's not found through a cause. No matter how good or noble it may appear, appear, appear to be. But I am the one who fought for you. I am the one who delivered you. I am the one who provided manna for you. I am the one who gave you drink. I am the light of the world. That's what Jesus is saying. All these things that you celebrate, they point to me. They point to me. I am the light of life. So Jesus is the light that is promised we see Jesus, thirdly, is the light that is promised at the exclusion of all else. See, there's an exclusive nature that is demonstrated in Jesus' argument. And we're going to try to look at that argument briefly this morning. But it's exclusive, my friends. There's an exclusive nature to it. Jesus says that I'm the light. If you don't follow the light, you're going to walk in what? You're going to, that's exclusive. 
There's no ands, ifs, or buts about that. There's no way around that. There's no way to soft pedal that at the end of the day. Jesus says in verses 15 and 16 that, you know, the Pharisees, you are judging your good. You are judging your cause by what? What does he say there? He says, you judge according to the, according to the flesh. That's not, a, that's not a compliment. You judge according to the flesh, but I judge rightly. Your cause is going to land you three times, he says, dying in your sins. Did you catch that? Three times. That's what your cause is going to land you. Your cause is from below. You're from below. I'm from above, he says that in verse 22. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. He says that in verse 23. The Father is going to leave you alone, he says in verse 29. I am pleasing to the Father. Clear contrast. Night and day. Light and darkness. Right? So it's an exclusive statement that Jesus is the light. He gives us that argumentation throughout this passage. He also makes the statement, I am. He does that actually, I think, at least twice in this immediate context. He goes on, as Mr. Hickson read, and he says, I am before Abraham was. Before this, we have Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. So this is not the first time, but Jesus, at least here in our little context, does it twice. And then if you expand the context, he does it three times. He first makes the statement, I am the light. Then uh, look with me in verse 18. What does he say? I am. There's an emphasis there. I am he who testifies about myself. And what is he saying? He's saying, I have the ability to testify about myself. Why? Because I'm God. Because, I'm from the fa- because I and the Father are one. No one else can testify on my behalf. There's, nothing, there's no greater authority. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He says, I am the light. And uh, this goes all the way back to Moses in the burning bush where God says, I am who I am. You don't define me by outside things. I am who I am. I'm the self-existent one. In fact, in verse 18, that word he... There in our text, that's supplied. Literally, she says, I am who testifies about. That word he is supplied. And so the point is, there is no comparative. In, 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 in the figure that Jesus is now claiming to be, I am the light, we could think about it this way. Light is the only, only thing, I think this is true, the only thing in all of the universe that is self-testifying. Think about that. Self-testifying. Light doesn't need something else. Light is light. Light emanates and beams and displays that it is. Right? If I jump up and down and I say, I'm here, I'm here, and it's complete darkness, you're never going to see me. If there's no light, I can't reveal myself to you. And so... All other things in the universe need light to be seen, but light is self-authenticating. It's self-evident. And Jesus says, I am the light. There's nothing that can authenticate me. 
That's what they're about to try to do in the next few verses. They're going to try to de-authenticate Jesus for what he claims, who he claims to be. Jesus says, by, by, by very nature, I am light. I am light. I am the ultimate authority. There's, is there anything that can testify? Is there anything lesser that can testify to a greater authority? Think about what the Pharisees really are asking Jesus to do here. There is no greater authority than Jesus. So how can anyone else testify? Jesus says, except for who? Who can testify? The Father. The Father can testify. Because I and the Father were one. But there's no one else. There's no one greater. And that's really what's taking place here in verses 13, 18 and, and following. I don't want to take time to read all of that this morning. Uh, but I, I do want to just look at this little argumentation to, to bring that out. Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh about you know, my testimony and the fact that it's not true in verse 15. It says, I'm not judging anyone. In verse 16, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I'm not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Then he says this. He says, even in your law. So he's trying to get into a little bit of argumentation here. Not arguing like with an attitude, but argumentation, just logic. He says, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. And you know what's interesting about that? That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 19. And we see Jesus quoting that elsewhere in the scriptures. You can take your Bibles. You don't have to because of time. But you can take your Bibles and you could go to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16. And Jesus says this. If there's, if there's, uh, but if, if he does not listen, that is uh, the person that you're trying to testify about. Take one or two more witnesses. And then he says this. That by the mouth of two or three men. It doesn't say men there. He says by the mouth of two or three Witnesses, he uses the technical term that the law uses in Deuteronomy chapter 19. That the mouth of two or three witnesses may be confirmed, that the fact may be confirmed through them. But Jesus changes his statement here in John chapter 8. What does he say? He says, even in your law, verse 17, it has been written that the testimony of two witnesses? No. He says men. I don't want to overlook. It's subtle, but I think it's important because it, it, it really is playing into Jesus' argumentation. Basically, what he's saying is he's saying this. If I can do this Steve Sindelar version this morning, all right, which is scary, I know. All right. It says this. Even in your law, with all its human limitations, I think we could argue that from the context, it has been written that the testimony of two mere men is established as true. That's Jesus' point. Is you are looking at trying to establish something as true by mortal, fallible men who wither like grass, whose flower, flower fades. Then he says this. How much more then when the great I am himself testifies of what is true. And if that weren't enough, Jesus says, also the Father, the God of heaven, testifies as well. That's what Jesus is saying there in verse 17. Verse 18, I am he who testifies about myself. I have the authority to do it, unlike any man. 
And oh, by the way, so it is the Father who sent me. And so Jesus is uh, making an exclusive claim about himself. And, you know, there's many brands out there. There's many causes. And it's hard sometimes to, for people to swallow the fact that Jesus is saying that he is the light. There is nothing else. There is no other way. And he leaves no room for any kind of universalism whatsoever. It's not okay for each person to just decide what they want to believe, go about their merry way, and, and we're all going to end up in a good place at the end of the day. It's not how it works. Jesus says, I am the light. It is our task to follow him. Jesus' light is clear. We would call it bright. I have little girls. Right? No doubt some of you have had the opportunity to, to let someone very young have a flashlight. What does it see? What, what, what happens every time a little person has a flashlight? What, is it, what, what tends to happen? They want to show you, don't they? And how do they show you? They turn it on and they shine it right in your face, right? It's like inevitable. If a little kid has a flashlight, it's going to end up in somebody's eye. You know, looking at too bright of a light can be harmful. Remember that solar eclipse we had like seven years ago and everybody ran out of those cool glasses that you're supposed to have to look at it? And people are looking at it anyway and they're like, no, don't look at it, have to look at it, no, don't look at it. You know, you can actually uh, ruin your eyesight by looking at the moon through a too powerful of a telescope. Your eyesight? Careful, those of you who have telescopes. You have to have a moon filter, moon lens. I don't even know, so ask someone who does. But you know, Jesus is the brightest light. But he is equally abounding in mercy. And that's my point with the little, little illustration. Jesus could simply, he could simply lose all of, all, of his, all of his covers, and he could illuminate the very festival, and out-illuminate all the illuminaries of all the festival. Jesus could do it. He could make everything else go out and literally demonstrate, I am the light, and blind everybody like that. But he doesn't. Because there's a compassionate call to Jesus' true salvation. And that's what I want to look at next. There's a clear contrast. Jesus is the light. But there's also a compassionate call. We're going to make quicker speed of this, I promise. Jesus' compassion is demonstrated through his patient repetition. I mean, just think about the context for a second. This is not Jesus' first salvation appeal. This will not be Jesus' last salvation appeal. How patient and how gentle is he in his reminders, in his repetitions that I am salvation. Come to me. How many of us needed patient but repetitious reminders of God's word in our life before we came to salvation? I know I had to sit here as a rebel in, G in Jesus' eyes for six months before the word of God went like that, right between my eyes. I, I saved myself this morning because I'd break my glasses. But that's what it felt like. I had to hear God's word again and again and again. And I can't tell you the difference between last week and the week that I came to know Jesus as my Savior, only that the light of life came into my heart and told me I was a deep, dark sinner and I needed him. I needed him. But Jesus is compassionate with that, isn't he? And I'm so glad he is. 
I'm so glad he was for me, and he remains so today. And my friends, what I don't want us to uh, miss is that even though there is a clear-cut contrast of who Jesus is, we still are in the mercy days. We're still in the days that Jesus is calling great and compassionate pleas for people to come to him. And they will. And they will. And they will. Jesus says, come to me and drink. Chapter 7. He says, I'm the bread of life. Chapter 6. He feeds 5,000 and walks on water, demonstrating that he is God. He heals at the pool of Bethesda. He heals the official son. Jesus is walking around declaring gently, patiently, I'm God. I'm salvation. He's in the midst of the festival where they're completely missing the point. And instead of overthrowing and casting everybody out, and he has warned to do that. He did that before in John chapter 2. What does he do? Again, he says, Follow me, or you're going to walk in darkness. Follow me. I am the light of life. And don't miss that Jesus again, look at verse 12. I know, we're still there. Look at verse 12. That Jesus again spoke to them, saying, this is beautiful because John does this all the time in his gospel. He always goes back to Jesus' words. And it's the prologue, right? Jesus is the word. In the beginning, right? The Word. It's always interesting to me that Jesus could at any one point display his power supremely through a supernatural act. What does Jesus do? I do not have that reservation, right? If I had the ability to turn water into wine, if I had the ability to raise people from the dead, if I had the ability to do whatever it is I wanted to do to demonstrate power over creation, I would be doing that right and left and I wouldn't even say anything. Right? Because we're a bunch of thick people and we, don't, we, don't, we just don't get it. But you know what? We're so thick that we don't even get it when Jesus demonstrates it. So God, in his providence and in his power and his compassion, he sends his son, the word, to give us the word of God, which is life, which is eternal life. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? It's the power of God Amen. to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew and then the Greek. And so that's what Jesus does here. He demonstrates, hey, Christian, don't be scared or tired of giving God's word to your friends, your family, your neighbors. They may not get it. They may not get it tomorrow. It may take six months. It may take six years. It may take 60 years. But God and God's word alone is powerful to bring people to salvation. That's what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus says, again, I'm speaking to them, I am the light of the world. He's demonstrating that. So don't give up. Don't give up. And there's really nothing else to do. Right? If, if they're not going to hear it from the Savior's mouth, right? It, it, sometimes we'd be, man, if I just knew Scripture better, or if I could just articulate better, or if I was just as cool as this person or this, right? People would come to, I'd be a great witness and evangelist for, no. I mean, the Savior of the world, the light of life, is standing in the midst of a bunch of religious people, and they totally miss him. Completely. But, with that being said, don't forget, God's word is powerful. So don't ever put it to bed. Don't ever put it to rest. Keep it on your lips and in your heart. And keep living it. 
keep living the way Jesus lives, the light of the world, and keep speaking it the way Jesus speaks it, with compassion, but great clarity and truth. And that's a hard balance today, isn't it? Because everybody has a truth, but there's no compassion. And we have the truth, and we must be the most compassionate people on the face of this earth, because Jesus our Savior was. And he demonstrates that here. Demonstrates from the fact that he is the light of the what? Of the world. You know, I love Christmas. I decorate. I drive my wife crazy. I have outlets that turn on automatically, right? I, 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 I know. And I have specific lights, right, for specific decorations. I love to decorate, but I like lights in my decorations because it is dark in December, right? I mean, it goes down at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It is dark. It seems like that. All right, maybe it's 4, but it's dark. I turn the lights on at 2 in the afternoon, ready for it to be dark. You know, and I have specific lights because, you know, it, it takes a long time. It's kind of silly. Every time I put away my Christmas lights, I always wonder why I do it because it seems like a waste of time. But I, I enjoy doing it. I just don't enjoy cleaning it up. But I have lights that go on Christmas trees. I have lights that go on stair railings. I have lights that go outside and specific bushes. And, and I have lights now for specific things because I know this many strands and this bush, this many things on the railing. I know I'm a nerd. I told you. You're going to make fun of me for the rest of the day. We'll see memes about this later. But the reality is, right, I have lights of the railing. I have lights of the Christmas tree. Jesus Christ is the light for the world. That is so compassionate, so merciful. God sent his son into the world for the world. He's the light. There's not a more compassionate mission that Jesus has than the light of the world. He says, you know what, as, as, as exclusive as light is, it's also so, uh, I hate to use this word, but it's inclusive. It, it's open to all. Right? That whoever, that's the force there, he who follows me, whoever follows me, it's open to all. It's open to all. So what great compassion. And I don't want to miss the compassion. You can kind of tell we're, we're staying in verse 12 and we're kind of going through the rest of the passage. Are you, you getting that sense a little bit, hopefully? Look at verse 20. Look at where, look at where Jesus is saying this. We have a detail here that I just find very interesting. Where is Jesus speaking this? Yeah, he's in the temple. He's in Jerusalem. But where in the temple? John tells us where. These words he spoke in the treasury. You know, that's interesting. The festival was a busy time of year for the temple. In other words, it brought in a lot of dough. Huge amounts of money were deposited. This is the same place where... Jesus is overturning the money exchangers in John chapter 2. But he doesn't do that here. He just speaks to them who he is. He is the light of life. And we have another record from the Mishnah. Again, that's that oral tradition that I talked to you about that was written down. About the treasury area. And I want to read a little bit of it. So I think it'll, it'll, it'll show us just how complicated this collection was. Just how much of a business this festival activity brought in. How much money it brought in. And just how much compassion Jesus had to not just wipe them out, but to tell them, don't follow darkness. I mean, he's standing in the darkest part of the temple, in, my, in his estimation, I think, right? Don't make my father's house what? About, about earthly business. About a den of thieves. Don't do that. 
I mean, this is the, this is the core of the corruption. And we have this listed out. You know, there are 13 trumpet chests in the sanctuary, it says. And written on these trumpet chests were the following. One chest was for new shekels. One was for old shekels. Not making this up. One, the third one was for bird offerings. Another one was for young birds for a burnt offering. Another one was for wood. Another one was for frankincense. Another one was for gold on the, for the mercy seat. And then there were six other trumpet chests for free will offerings. Basically, give however you want to. Right? But just give. And then it goes on to say, the new shekels were for those each year. That is for the present year. In other words, whatever you got this year, that, that's, the, that's the offering that you should give to that chest. And then the old shekels was this. He who did not pay his shekel last year pays his shekel in the coming year. So we had a, we had a, we had a, hey, just in case you missed it last year, you couldn't make it or whatever. There's another, give your new shekel, make sure you give your old shekel too. Boy, I guess we could go ahead and label those boxes in the back of the fellowship hall that way, huh? We won't do that. And it goes on to describe. John states that in the middle of the treasury area, Jesus points out that he is light. I mean, you can just see. You just get a flavor for how dark it is. Such a bankrupt yet greedy religious system. You know, six, about six months later, this is interesting. Jesus will sit across from the same area in the treasury. And he'll observe large amounts of money being poured into these offerings by rich people. And opposite of that, he'll see a widow. In about six months' time, right before he's crucified, he'll see a widow with her little mite. You know what? Jesus condemns that abusive religious system. Jesus knew that moment was coming, didn't he? He's sitting there, knowing that time will come, seeing the widow giving all she has to bankrupt her. By the abuses of a twisting, wringing out religious system trying to get everything it can from everyone. And yet completely empty to provide any kind of eternal life. And you may be sitting here this morning and you may be thinking, you know, I, I can't receive Jesus' salvation. I don't deserve it. I'm, I'm like those abusive Pharisees sitting there raking it in while everybody's giving and, and, and ruining their lives. You don't know the kind of abuses that I've done to people. I would just say to you, Jesus is the light. And he compassionately calls all. He's in the midst of the treasury calling them to himself. And he who is the light is the light to those who have abused just as equally as he is the light to those who have been abused. And so there's no one too abusive and there's no one too broken not to come to the light of life. That's what Jesus is saying. He is the light of the world. He demonstrates his compassionate mission and ministry. There's some other things that we could see and uh, we're going to skip those this morning. But suffice to say, there's not, there's not a full exposition of this passage in my conscience. But for time's sake, we're going to skip. 
And we're going to move on to the, to the last, and this is a very brief point that I want us to see this morning. Not only is Jesus' light a clear contrast, not only is it a call, a compassionate call to salvation, but my friends, there is a concrete consequence to rejecting the salvation that Jesus provides. Those who reject Jesus, what do they do? They walk in darkness. That's what the verse says. That's what Jesus tells us. And again, he gives us a whole lot of contrast in the subsequent verses. He says, they're from below. They judge according to the flesh, verse 15. They have been left alone by the Father, verse 29. It's almost reminiscent in my mind of Romans chapter 1. Everything outside of Jesus is dark. You know what, Christian? I, can I just, can I be careful, but, but just remind you? That anything outside of Jesus is dark. And that, that goes true for our culture today. That, that goes through, through, that rings through in our culture 2,000 years ago when they crucified our Lord. There are a lot of crazy things hitting the fan, and I understand that. But remember that there's only one way to fix the darkness. Remember we started with, there's a lot of different causes out there. But there's only one that shines light to the light of men. To the light of eternal life. And that's Jesus. And the consequences, those who reject this Jesus, what will happen to them? Three times, Jesus says it. Boy, that's a way to have a conversation with someone, isn't it? Three times he says, if you do not walk in my light, what's going to happen? You will, 21, verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me. Probably talking about his, his death and the fact that they're still going to be looking for the Messiah. And what happens when they refuse the light? And you will die in your sins. Sin. Probably their sin of unbelief there. Where I am going, you cannot come. Then he says it again in verse 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You know what's interesting? It's, it's, not, it's not because of our sins. He's not saying you will die because of your sin. We're all going to die because of our sin. Unless the Lord comes, right? The rapture's church, we understand that. But that's the consequence of sin. We will all die because of our sin. But it is an altogether thing to die in. What Jesus is saying, die in your sin. You know, the ancient Egyptians, they, uh, they buried everything they could with them. Right? If you were a pharaoh, you had that, that opportunity. And one of the most uh, famous finds of all time, archaeologically, is King Tut's tomb. Remember that? Uh, in school. It may not be the grandest tomb. right? Like Ramses the Great had 8,000 square feet dedicated to him. He needed a lot of room in the afterlife. right? But uh, the boy king, who died at about 19, his tomb is unique because it's the most loot-free or undisturbed tomb that we've ever found. 
with over 5,000 artifacts, it is clear that the Egyptians believed in the ability to take things with you in the afterlife. King Tut had everything from, get this, I mean, he's 19, right? He didn't have a tablet. He didn't have a phone. But he did take board games with him. He took four of them. Four board games. He also took 413 statues of servants because they believed that, you know, they needed to be served in the afterlife. These statues even came complete with different copper tools so some could work on fields and some could prepare food and do whatever for King Tut in his grand old golden years, right? It's actually better than a thousand years before if you served the Pharaoh a thousand years prior to King Tut, you actually were sacrificed with the Pharaoh and involved in the tomb with him. They, uh, they replaced that about a thousand years later with, with little statues. Isn't that, isn't that sweet? He also had a hundred sandals, 12 tunics, whatever you do with tunics, I don't know, 28 gloves, 25 head coverings, 145 pieces of undergarments with a thread count of 200 threads per inch of fine Egyptian cotton. He was going to live large in the afterlife. <laughs> Sounds comfy. Here's a culture that celebrated, that prepared for, that even gifted others certain things for their afterlife because they wanted to take all they could with them. Yet the irony is from a scriptural standpoint, we know you can't take any of that stuff with you. But Jesus says that if you are without him, you will take one thing with you that you don't want to take with you. You will be united. You will be in your sin for all of eternity. There's no more tragic thing in all the world than that. It would be a lot better to just be snuffed out, wouldn't it? to be an annihilationist, just not to believe that anything exists, than to be united with all your sin for all time. But Jesus stands and he says, I am the light. Be united with me, not with your sin. You won't walk in darkness anymore. Anymore. In conclusion, I just want to begin where we left off. What's your cause? We learn that the light of life has a clear contrast to all causes and concerns. Jesus' mission stands fundamentally distinct to all their efforts, no matter how good, no matter how uh, virtuous. In fact, we have seen that there is a concrete consequence, we just talked about that, to the pursuit of anything that's outside of Jesus Christ. We will die in our sins. There's also hope, there's good news. There's a compassionate call to all those who will believe and follow. We see that in verse 30. And he spoke these things, and many came and he believed and believed in him. You know, following the light this morning means that you have repented of your sins. You're not walking in darkness. And it means that you have trusted in Jesus to be the light of life of your life. One of the glories of this hour is that we see the brilliance of the light of life as we are gathered together worshiping him basking in the light of the word. But the delight often fades, doesn't it? As we walk back out into the darkness of the coming week, to the news cycle, to things seemingly getting worse and worse. But Jesus gently reminds us, don't judge things on appearances. It's a big 
Don't judge things with how we think is right or wrong. You can't get any darker than the absence of Jesus' light. You can't get any darker than the absence of Jesus' light. So it's my prayer that we're not going to go out fearful this week. We're not going to go out discouraged. We're not going to go out defeated. We're not going to go out wondering what in the world's going to happen, even though those are real concerns and real feelings. We want to go out being light bearers this week. Demonstrating that Jesus is the light. I'm going to end with these words from the Apostle John that reassure us. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us certainly to appreciate full measure of what Jesus says when he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Lord, there may be some here this morning that do not have Jesus as the light. They've been abused, or they're abusers, or maybe they're both now. Jesus says compassionately to them, brother, sister, friend, come out of the darkness. I am the light. To those of us who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see light because he is light. Oh Lord, help us to gird about our, our spiritual sensibilities this week. And remember, recall, that where there is Jesus, there is great light. And where I take great light, there is great hope to a world who lives in darkness. You have not called us out of the darkness the implication John gives us elsewhere. But you have called us to be light, clear, standing on truth, but also very compassionate. Lord, I pray this week for strength to live according to those, thing, those things we pray.